You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. Previously on The Burn Scar, Ariel's parents lived through the most destructive wildfire in Colorado history, the Marshall Fire. It's a shock to the community of Boulder because it's not a typical forest fire. It's a grassland fire, and it happens in the wintertime, not in the heat of summer. Ariel, her husband, and small children, meanwhile, they're stuck in a hotel in Missouri due to a freak ice storm. The whole family is feeling like climate refugees especially when Ariel learns that her childhood house has burned to the ground and she's two states away, unable to help. Her elderly parents wake the next morning to fresh snow falling into a giant burn pit that was once their home. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is The Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. Here's part two of The Burn Scar. Producer Ariel Lavery picks it up from here. So that's where I am. I really am still a 70% homeless person. I check in with my parents often through Zoom in the weeks after the Marshall Fire, trying to keep tabs on Dad's adjustment. It's hard hearing him talk about feeling homeless. In their rushed evacuation, my parents were only able to save a few things. Mom got her computer, phone, wallet, Dad's meds, and a change of clothes, but... Pretty much everything else had burned. In the coming months, it will dawn on her again and again that had she been out that day, the total loss could have included the lives of Dad and their dog, Jesse. I'm still in recovery phase. So Mom on the other screen, hosted by Andrew, was saying he still needs some clothes. Without supplies sustaining them more than a day, they start acquiring things through the FEMA Disaster Center and regular shopping trips. My parents were able to avoid the hotel stays that so many other victims rely on. They stay a few nights at their friends, Mark and Lori's. Then they relocate to another of my mom's good friends, Marty's, who lives alone and has an extra bedroom. 
within a few days of being at Marty's house, I got a call from Jim Harden. Jim's our neighbor to the north. And he said, hey. Jim knew someone that was working at a local senior living home. For Balfour, and they have some available apartments there. Are you interested? I'm conflicted here. Because the thought of my spry, 69-year-old vegan mom moving into senior housing is not one I'm comfortable with. Nor is she. But she and Dad tour the Balfour facility and meet with a rep who shows them an apartment and offers them a waiver of the $10,000 initiation fee. Mom is resistant. I don't think I ever wanted to think about living in a retirement home like this. Even before the fire, the Front Range's housing market was tight. Rental prices had been steadily increasing for decades, and there was less and less housing stock available. Now, with more than a thousand households needing someplace new to live, that stock is disappearing even faster, and landlords are taking advantage. One neighbor tells me about her landlord wanting to increase his original listing price by $500 a month in the wake of the fire. I think mom feels wary about being taken advantage of in a senior living situation she never wanted. The decision not to rebuild has put them in a tricky spot, suddenly planning for the rest of their lives all over again. But mom is not the only one needing a safe place to live. Her needs are partially defined by my dad's. Wait a minute, she has to cl- put clothes on me about six times a day. That takes a lot of time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I dress and undress dad. The 800-square-foot, one-bedroom apartment in independent living is also incredibly expensive at $6,000 a month. And that is after the initiation fee. But who can afford $6,000 a month? Well, come to find out, my parents' insurance can. Most standard policies pay to maintain your cost of living if you can no longer live in your home. It's called loss-of-use coverage. But taking this small apartment would mean Mom would be sleeping on the couch while Dad took the bed. They'd have to share a small bathroom and would be in each other's space all the time. Mom thinks maybe they can just stay at Marty's. Start paying her monthly rent with mom and dad's insurance allotment. But um, I think that maybe they would have cut down the monthly allotment. I don't really know. I didn't ask questions like, oh, since we're spending 6000 a month, is that what you're going to keep giving us? And it sounds like yes. Was it clear to you about how those living expenses like how much you would be getting and what that depended on and in, in terms of where you were living? No, not really. There was nothing explained about that at all. They just said, we're sending you $36,000 for the first six months. Ultimately, mom chooses the senior living facility. And I thought, you know, this will be a really good place for dad to be for however long we are here. Mom accepts that her aging husband probably needs to be in a place like this anyway. And maybe this is the opportunity to get them integrated. Have you guys both been talking to each other about your kind of mental progress with this? Yeah, I think so. Didn't we talk about that this morning? We, uh, We talk to each other all the time. Aside from Dad's declining cognitive abilities... 
The difference between mom and dad's experience of recovery has been consistent with the roles they've played in each other's lives. And my life. Dad was the visionary, the romantic, the university professor who declared that a person should follow their dreams. Answering a question is never a straightforward task for him. But only recently have we started making real noticeable movements into our lives together. Mom was the pragmatist and an incredibly hard worker. Growing up, I watched her grit her teeth and buckle down. Well, yeah, most days it's like, this is what we have to do today. We have to do A, B, C, and D. It's just a list of things to do, what we have to get done. All right, it's recording. I ask mom in April, about four months after the fire, if she wants to work on producing a podcast series with me about the loss of our house. Face. Yeah, it is that. Just like we did last time. Okay. Then you're all set. That's all you need to do. Okay, good. Oh, that was so much easier. But <laughs> <Right laughs> I was going to have to go through the whole thing again. I've been producing podcasts professionally for a few years now, and in one of those eureka moments in the shower, I thought, I'm living through a defining moment of my life right now. We all are. Maybe we should record this. Mom is on board pretty quickly and learns how to use one of my old Zoom recorders. Adding, by the way, to the set of skills she is fast acquiring as a wildfire victim. So my name is Victoria Simpson. Um, I am a retired physician, anesthesiologist. When I was young, my mom wasn't around much. She started medical school when I was just a baby. When I graduated in May of 88, then I immediately came to Colorado, did an internship at St. Joe's Hospital in internal medicine. Now, after having two kids, hearing her list of accolades blows me away. I started my residency in anesthesia at University of Colorado Hospitals. Imagine doing all this with a young child. And then, after I finished that, I did a one-year fellowship at Children's and Pediatric Anesthesia. After school, I would plunk down in front of the TV until the moment I heard the garage door open. Then, I would bolt upstairs and act as if I had been doing my homework the whole time. I was scared of Mom when I was young. Never sure what baggage she would be bringing home to come raging through the door with that evening. But today, I totally get it. Raising kids and maintaining a household is no picnic. Especially when you have a super high-stress job in a male-dominated field and virtually zero downtime. I wasn't playing a lot of tennis then. I don't think I was playing very much at all. I was just working, basically. <laughs> But all that stress did come with a healthy paycheck, and they decided to buy a home in the growing Front Range. The first time we looked at it was, must have been in 1988, that is when we moved in. There were not many other houses in the entire development. I think there were four or five houses. I had never even lived in a two-story house before, and I thought that was great. I always wanted to live in a two-story house. And it was right on Davidson Mesa. At the time, I think that wasn't an official open space of Louisville, because our realtor said to us, I can't guarantee you that this space behind the house won't be developed. She wasn't sure at the time. I don't think anybody was. 
So we were hoping that would never get developed and we got lucky. Louisville somehow managed to buy the property and develop it into our own private park right behind our house. To be clear, that open space wasn't privately kept for our neighborhood's use. But I think a lot of residents that moved into the enclave felt like us. This was our space. When you've spent a lot of money on a brand new home that overlooks vistas for miles in all directions, it's hard not to feel like you own the entire front range. There was almost nothing on McCaslin, just the enclave. That was one of the earliest developments. And um, yeah, it's, it's just, boy, it's hard to remember what it was really like. <laughs> in 1988, it felt like the enclave was surrounded by prairie. But since my parents bought their house, the expansive landscape has filled in. Hundreds of houses and shops have been developed along the McCaslin Corridor. The neighborhood became incorporated into a suburban landscape. But its name, the Enclave, suggests something separate, removed and insulated from outside influences. Mom and Dad had really never lived in a place like this before. I thought it was unusual. It's, I mean, it seems a little um, exclusive. I think that's the way they wanted it to be. But I thought, okay, that's fine. It's like, maybe they named it that because it's just a little circle drive and it sits there by itself and you can't sort of drive through it. Maybe that's why they called it the Enclave. If you turn on Washington... That goes by Harper Lake. Yeah, it does. They probably have it blocked at both ends, but we can try. I don't get to see what had become of the enclave until April, four months after the fire. But when I'm here, not much has changed since the fire came roaring through. All of a sudden, you come into this space that's yep. everything's black and. These guys got torched. Just like us. I don't want to be part of Colorado history. This is not the club you want to be in. I really don't. (laughs) I never really considered my family an important part of the evolving history of the West. In fact, I've been privileged enough to feel kind of removed from history. When I was young, I always wondered what it would be like to come west in a covered wagon and see the front range for the first time. I imagined the untamed wildness of this landscape taking my breath away, without ever considering how it could also take my life away. Today, it's hard to describe what it feels like to drive through the burn scar that was once our place of peace and comfort. It now looks like a war zone, a palette of dull grays, white ash, and charcoal-colored skeleton trees blanket the ground. Stone facades remain like scattered monuments, steadfast amidst piles of burned rubble. This is very dramatic. We finally come to our lot. And have they moved the mailboxes up to the 
street so that they know what the addresses are? Because I notice. Yeah. That. No. Actually, I moved that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I could find it. Because initially, the first time I came by, I had a little trouble identifying things yeah. until I really stopped and looked. A big reason I go out in April is to see what is left of our house, despite the toxins left behind. I guess I'm one of those people that needs to see the body in the coffin for it to become real. For Mom, it's been real for a while. Yeah, this is our house that we lived in for 33 years that burned to the ground in the Marshall Fire. Trying to identify things from inside the car is tricky. I do notice, immediately, the tall black skeletons scattered around the front of the lot. Mom had planted as many trees as she could fit around the house. We planted all of these trees, and every one of my trees I really had a lot of affection for, so I was very sad to see them all go. What were these ones? Were these pines right here? Yes, there were three spruce, and the one in the back that's a little taller was a Bosnian pine. Okay. All right, baby, we're going to get out now. I think growing up in Missouri, Mom missed the privacy and sense of security the trees offered. The vastness of this landscape, though beautiful, offers no privacy or protection from the elements. My brother Andrew was the first family member to visit the site, and he described it to me after. You can go stand at the house now, and it doesn't feel like it... Is the neighborhood, the landscape feels different. Just because there's no buildings anywhere, all of a sudden it's this flat landscape and you can, you can see further than you ever have, but it f- feels like you're in a different space. And he's right. It's a totally different space. Yep, everything. The fire was so hot that all this stuff just... It just crumples? It just crumbled and exploded. Wow. And... All that was really standing was like stone structures, right? Like street, like the enclave sign, I think, was still there. I asked both my siblings what they remember about our house, comparing their memory to mine. Thought about your massive horse painting a lot. My sister Katie remembers my artwork hanging everywhere. The six-foot-tall horse painting was a little sad for me, but... At least I didn't have to figure out what to do with all that anymore. You can still smell the burning a little bit. It almost smells like when you open a kiln. Yeah, it's very familiar smell. I remember the piano. Like the piano was one of the first things that you saw going into the house and it was a nice large you know wood piano and all that's left of the baby grand is the charred frame. So there's part of the piano. Down there, the, the strings. Oh yeah, look at that. Yeah, there's the. And there's my bow flex, and there's my stationery. Oh my gosh. I remember, you know, what our house looked like before mom and dad remodeled the kitchen. Oh, this was the refrigerator. Oh yeah, that's what it was. And that's the oven. Right. Mom's big wok that was rarely used, but it just hung there in the kitchen, kind of thing. And, the... and yeah, there's the sink. There's your teapot. Christmas, you got me like six plates or so with like little chilies that you would you'd decal them. It was one of those things I was always at mom and dad's house that, you know, I was going to pick up one, one day. I'm pretty sure the entire 
bottom half of one of the cabinets a bunch of drawers were just filled with like photo albums and photos and VHS tapes. Our family's entire collection of photo albums is gone. All those memories were never digitized, despite us having many conversations about doing that. See those splatters over there that look like aluminum? Yeah. Mom points out what she thought was her exploded e-bike battery. What happened is that lithium, lithium battery on the frame exploded. Oh, yeah. Because that's the only place these splatters have shown up is right here. And the bike was sitting right there. Yeah, you could so see like the debris of that all over the ground. That was crazy. That makes you think like, yeah, wildfires are wildfires, but a house fire is truly toxic. Yeah, there's your chain. What was this for? I think that was a fire extinguisher. Oh. Too bad it didn't work. Didn't work. <laughs> Good having that in the house. I think you need a lot bigger one. <laughs> and I think, I think about the objects, and then I think about what they must have looked like on fire. I feel like as I'm... As I'm seeing all this stuff, I'm just, like, imagining the house disintegrate underneath it and, like, imagining a fireplace falling down in Me there. Me, too. I, I, I have those visions in my head all the time. Yeah. Imagining one's neighborhood meet its end. Envisioning just what this neighborhood looked like engulfed in flames. I wonder if this is all part of the feeling of solastalgia. That's a term you won't find in the dictionary. It's too new. But if you've lost any part of the home or the environment you grew up with due to disaster or destruction, I bet you've experienced solastalgia. It's a term invented by the Australian philosopher Glenn Albrecht to describe the feeling many people are having these days of homesickness. Albrecht wrote that solastalgia is the feeling of homesickness without leaving home. Visiting the site, some things are the same. The house finches sing the same song they did in my childhood. I hear the same roaring of a jet plane overhead. If I close my eyes and plug my nose for a moment, I am standing right back in my parents' yard as it was years ago. Then I'm brought right back to today with the sounds of nearby cleanup crews. It's completely bizarre to straddle two different realities in the same place. Solastalgia is an increasingly common experience as the natural environment rapidly changes. And I find myself wondering if it will become more common for urban and suburban landscapes like this one. Tulips are coming up. Oh, look at that. They're doing their best to survive. Oh, I love that. Yeah. They're like, fire what fire? Yeah, they, they are trying. My main takeaway after touring our burn site? It's going to be a huge cleanup project. That's when we return. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. 
take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. The mess left behind by wildfire extends far beyond one's property. Wildfire victims must become proficient in many new skills in order to hit the restart button. Everyone whose homes were destroyed by the fire are now responsible for finding someone to clean it up. My understanding was if you had so much allocated from your insurance policy, like 50000 to clear the lot, then they would take that and then, and then they would do the clearing. Some of the FEMA funds that come into a community after a disaster go toward paying a contractor for coordinated debris removal, which is basically the community-wide effort to clean up as opposed to an independent contractor. A contractor is then selected by the city or county. The contractor selected for the Marshall Fire cleanup was originally set to begin on March 1st, but then... There were all these lawsuits filed against Boulder County. They were designed to slow down the cleanup. They were contesting the award of the contracts for the cleanup. That was all from the former head of FEMA and his com- on behalf of his company, Diggs. Right, Michael Brown. A nonprofit demanding integrity in government spending was created by a former FEMA director, Michael Brown. Brown resigned from that role after criticism of how FEMA handled the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. As victims of the Marshall Fire try to move forward with their lives, this former FEMA director is trying to slow down the process. It's unnerving for a lot of people, including Mom. She attends a protest that's organized. Does Michael Brown speak for the public interest here? Rally organizer Tanya Samaru says an outsider, without any connection to the fire, shouldn't step in. This is not what we want. We want we want equipment digging on our property. It seems to mom and me another instance in which a predatory company is trying to swoop in and fill the niche opened by the fire. Mercifully, though, protest efforts are effective, and Michael Brown drops the lawsuit. Victims press on with cleanup efforts, but... Clarity about just how the coordinated debris removal is paid for isn't really there either. Neighbors are telling mom conflicting information. And then later, Jim Hardman, who had FEMA clean his lot, said, well, now that we're considered to be underinsured, FEMA is going to absorb the whole cost. I don't know if that's really true or not, because Paul Austin told me the opposite. The debris cleanup that over a thousand households are responsible for stretches all the way into summer before finally reaching completion in August. Thankfully for us, mom and dad's insurance provides good coverage for debris removal and mom is able to get off the FEMA wait list. So the reason I went with a private contractor is because I got a, an estimate. It came in at $38,000, I think, to clear our lot, which is very reasonable. At my request, Mom records her consultation with her cleanup guy, who comes out of retirement to help. Boy, did you ever think you'd have a job like this, like doing all of these? It's so, it's so bizarre. It I is mean, bizarre. the whole thing's bizarre. You know, uh, I retired two years ago, 32 years as a paramedic firefighter. And, oh, really? And, and I, my boys own Linkus Corporation. He says, I've got, I've got like three or four houses. Can you go do that? I go, sure. 
And I come up here, and next thing you know, it's 50 houses. And so so everyone at the firehouse is laughing. It's like, hey, how's your retirement going? And I said, it's full time, baby. You know? But that's fine. I'm only 63 years old. I'm not ready to stop. Getting your life back after your home is destroyed requires a lot of paperwork. Your heart is broken, you're homeless, and you have to worry about these tiny details. Save all your receipts. It's not just a matter of filing a claim with your insurance company. So I saved every single receipt I collected for the first six months. I had bags of these receipts. Most of it was groceries. Without knowing much about how the insurance is going to work, Mom becomes very systematic in making sure that everything they spend is archived. Because they they really do want accounting of what you spend the money on. I could actually get the paperwork out and and read off everything. Let me look. I have a folder. I have a little file cabinet. It is, I'll show it to you. It's this. It's a purple cardboard box. Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) That's not fire safe. It's not fire safe, you're right. (laughs) Every homeowner's policy is unique. This is the uh, loss worksheet that explains the settlement. That's what it says here. So coverage A was a building limit. Every insurance company uses a formula to estimate the total required coverage to rebuild a home. What they paid out was what the house was assessed for by Boulder County. Since my parents' total loss of their home, there's one thing that is now painfully clear. You've got to read your policy. You've got to check in with your insurance agent and understand what your life would look like if you suddenly lost your house in a disaster event. Otherwise, you might be getting left in the dust. It, had, it was probably a couple years beforehand. Dad had talked with the insurance company, and we had upped our insurance so that it was in a little better shape than most everybody else. My parents have coverage based on a relationship my dad started with their agent 40 years ago. He was living in a mobile home in Marshall, working as a postdoc at the University of Colorado. My thinking is they got lucky getting an insurer who's easy to work with. For one thing, he gives them a payout for personal property loss without any extra work. Many, if not most people, who know they want to rebuild right away find out they're seriously underinsured. Many of those people are our neighbors. I remember thinking that this was the perfect place to raise kids. Because like you said, especially in the Enclave, with no through traffic, nobody came over there unless they were visiting someone. The Fahys were a family of six who lived across the street from us. I played nearly every day with the two twin girls, Catherine and Carolyn, who were a grade below me in school. I interviewed their mom, Deborah. My name is Deborah Fahey. My title is Louisville City Council Member. I want to interview Deborah for a few reasons. Number one, her presence on the Louisville City Council. I think she might have some great insight from the city's perspective on the after effects of the fire. Number two, This family has been considering the effects of pollution and climate change for as long as I can remember. Deb and Dave were strict about when the kids were allowed to be out in the sun. Sun hours is what they called it. 
what was it, from 11 to 3? 10 to 2. 10 to 2, okay. Dave Fahey, the twins' dad, works for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. He has always been very interested in climate and sustainability things since uh, he was part of the Montreal Protocol Okay. for ozone. I guess I kind of assumed that there was a hyper-vigilance in your family, maybe because of Dave's awareness. Well, we're so frustrated with what has not happened worldwide. I mean, the, the Paris Accord and the COP15 have been almost entirely ineffective. And if we don't do something globally now, we're, we're not going to recover from it. My vegan mom and me feel like we've made a bargain with the planet. That by eating green, living as green as possible, and trying to make daily choices for a healthy planet, we get protections from the effects of climate change. But that bargain obviously hasn't worked out. And when I think about the Fahey's situation, I think about the anxiety they've been living in for as long as I've known them. And here they are, also having lost their house in the most destructive wildfire in Colorado history. Deb told me recently that Dave has come home every day for years, carrying the weight of climate change on his shoulders. So it would seem their efforts have also been in vain. In fact, the Marshall Fire is the second time relatives in that family have lost homes to wildfire. My brother-in-law lost his home in the Santa Rosa Fire five years ago, so he knew how to do it. One of the things that we hadn't listened to with my brother-in-law was to go through the house right away before you lose it and film everything. Open every drawer, open every closet, every kitchen cabinet and film, a dated film, what's in there. So there's some good advice for anyone living in a fire-prone area or anyone who just might end up in a fire-prone area as the climate dries up the West. Unlike my parents, the Fahys don't accept the initial personal property loss payout from their insurance. The day after the fire, we hired a public adjuster. And I would recommend that to anyone. What I was told and the reason we did it was because it's like going to court with an attorney. A public adjuster is an independent adjuster for hire by the homeowner. So they are paid directly by the homeowner to get the best payout possible from insurance. With the help of a public adjuster, the Fahys painstakingly go through every room, every drawer, every closet to recall from memory what they had lost in the fire. I told the kids, yep, so um, the bottom left, so there's four cabinets, no, there's six no, there are eight cabinets along the family room wall. I said, and I know the first cabinet was grandkids' toys. So what was in there? See, well, we had some puzzles, we had their Legos, we had the train set. Every member of the six-person family helps complete their inventory. Hours of independent work, plus 10 to 12 hours of Zoom meetings. But if this endeavor is to prove fruitful, they have to reach a quota. Well, we were told by the adjuster to come up with a value of at least 25% 
more than what they were obligated to give you. Okay. And we came up with double. My parents also faced the choice of accepting their personal property payout or creating an inventory that everybody would need to contribute to. When I talk to mom about it, mom and dad disagree about whether this decision will mean they're leaving money on the table or insurance is taking care of them. Mom is inclined to take the original payout, but dad's paranoia, a symptom of Lewy body dementia, keeps intervening. Still, it's a daunting task to consider. All three of us kids living in different states, busy with the care of children, pets, or school, it's not a task any of us are thrilled about. And we did talk to an adjuster. This was an internal adjuster with mom and dad's insurance company. And we kind of gave him the numbers of what we got. He said, I don't really think I can do anything more for you. But if they're employed by the insurance company, then what is their incentive (laughs) to help you get the biggest payout? Probably there is no incentive. Yeah, that's what I have heard over and over again is that the insurance companies are not your friends. They will never give you the best deal. We all flounder, feeling guilty and burdened before we all kind of just conclude that it's not going to be worth the time to try to get more than what their payout is. I tell mom, time is money too. And as my dad's caretaker, hers is already in short supply. I have many questions about insurance. And I have done many Google searches about insurance. I really want to be able to get answers from the guy both my parents have trusted for 33 years. Hey, Ariel, this is Sherm Schrock. Uh, Thank you for thinking of me. I appreciate the opportunity to chat on a podcast. However, farmers will not let me do that kind of stuff. Corporate policy prevents our conversation. Keep smiling. Have a good day. So I reach out to an organization my mom and many of the Marshall Fire victims have gotten a lot of help from. United Policyholders. We are a unique nonprofit that serves as an information resource and a voice for insurance consumers across the country with a special focus on disaster resiliency and recovery. Amy Bach is the executive director of United Policyholders. She says most people will never have a total loss insurance claim in their life, which is a good thing. But because people think insurance will automatically take care of us when we need it. They just don't understand why you'd need this kind of advocacy, because the reality is a total loss uh, insurance claim can, for a lot of people, it's a full-time job. Like mom said, insurance companies are not your friends, even if you've known your agent for 40 years and they've always been friendly. Amy says that insurance companies do not easily part with their profits. They've erected lots and lots of, let's just say, hoops to get that kind of money. Hoops like filling out an entire inventory for loss of use are required. Loss of use is when your stuff is destroyed. I recently discovered my own insurance company requires an inventory of everything before they'll pay out a dime. 
you've been collecting a premium for a certain amount of contents coverage, everything's gone, you could just pay them the limit. As soon as the East Troublesome fire hit the year before, you know, the insurance commissioner contacted us for ideas on, okay, what, what kind of things should I be asking the insurers to do voluntarily? Publish a list of the names of the insurance companies that were being extra cooperative and then the ones that weren't so consumers could see. And he did that. After our interview, Amy sends me a survey United policyholders sent out to Marshall fire victims. In that survey, almost 58% of respondents say they, quote, experienced problems with their insurance claim or with insurance company representatives. In the survey, they say it's factors like delays in answering questions, phone calls or emails, and the estimate to replace dwellings was lowballed that seemed to contribute significantly to the perception of problematic insurance. But the most heartbreaking problem is when rebuilding a home becomes prohibitive because you're so vastly underinsured that the coverage gap is just too much. If you look at wildfire rebuilding coverage nationwide, you see that about two-thirds of victims are underinsured. This problem can ruin entire communities after a wildfire, like what we've seen in Paradise, California. Yet, the wildfire victims in Louisville have many advantages that other fire-stricken communities don't. When you have a pretty strong community, like what you have with the Marshall Fire, you have educated professional people that are organized. You know, they've got the Slack channel, they're talking to each other all the time. Um, And you have a proactive insurance commissioner. You've got three factors that are likely to lead to fewer lawsuits. They know they're not going to get away with things that they might get away with in areas where people are not as organized. Is that something you see then in communities that are less organized, that are less affluent? You see insurers kind of taking advantage of those victims? We do see that. Mom and Dad's decision not to rebuild might help simplify some of the gap between their coverage and the cost to rebuild. But there's a catch. One of their insurance agents tells them, you can't take the money and run. What were you thinking about doing with this payout money? Yeah, it wasn't... I, I was... I'm not sure. If I, the first thing I said was, oh, maybe we can just stay in Balfour for 10 years. <laughs> But you know what, when I, re, when I think about, again, the conversations I had with Jamie Johnson, he stated very clearly, he said, this is what you can do with this money. You can rebuild at the same site. You can go to another site and rebuild. Or you can buy a place. And I kind of forgot all about that because for a while I was thinking, oh, we'll just live on this money for a long time. But you really can't do that because the insurance company pays you this money to rebuild, really, to replace what you had. And the federal government 
looks at that as income. So it's taxed as income. So it was never really much of a possibility to just take the money and sit on it. The thought of rebuilding your life from scratch is daunting to anyone. Add to that being retired, being your partner's full-time caretaker, and living in a climate where this could happen again? Why would anyone choose to rebuild? But we're talking about a dandelion of a woman here. But yeah, it's great to see the spirit of people that are just coming back and say, I'm not going to let this tragedy define me. I'm not going to let it beat me down. That's next time on The Burn Scar. I'm Ariel Avery. I'm Melody Edwards. Noah Greenspan is the assistant producer. Ariel Avery is the sound designer this season. Our digital producer is Ryan Kelly. Thanks also for help from McKenna Lipson. To see Ariel's photographs of the burn scar that's now her family home, go to our website at themodernwest.org. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. We always love hearing from our listeners. Please reach out to us at themodernwestpod at gmail.com. We're also on social media at modernwestpod. If you love this show and care about this kind of storytelling, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.